Last week we said that having finished looking at John's gospel ourselves here in church, we were going to think for a couple of weeks about Jesus' position and his work today. The end of John's gospel told us that after rising from the dead, Jesus was returning to heaven, or in Jesus' own words, he was ascending to his Father. But we saw that when he ascended to heaven, Jesus did not retire. He is at work in heaven today. Last week, we looked at his work as Lord of history. That was in Revelation chapter 5. We saw that from his position on heaven's throne, Jesus is unfolding God's purposes for history. It's wonderful to know that. It's wonderful to know that history is in the hands of our risen Savior. But for some of us, that might seem a little impersonal. We might think it's great that he's overseeing and directing the affairs of world history. That is reassuring. But does Jesus see little old me in my little place? Does Jesus have help for me in my struggles and challenges? Well, if you're wondering that, the good news is, yes, he does see you. And yes, he does have help for you. The risen Jesus is our representative in heaven. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, where we're going to see that truth. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1204, and in the larger print Bibles, 1865. Hebrews chapter 4. The book of Hebrews was written to encourage weary Christians. And it does that by pointing them to Jesus, by pointing us to Jesus today. For 13 chapters, the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is God's gift to you. Jesus is your treasure. Look at what you have in Jesus. And the first part of chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus is our rest giver. He's the one who gives us peace at the center of our being. And this morning, we're going to pick up and read from chapter 4, verse 14, through to chapter 5, verse 10. As the writer of Hebrews tells us something else about Jesus, God's gift to us. He is our representative in heaven. So chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. 
This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. And it shows us how Jesus is our high priest. But the first thing we need to acknowledge is it probably doesn't seem immediately helpful to be told Jesus is our high priest. High priests are just not part of our day-to-day experience. None of us has ever seen a high priest. The high priest was a central figure in the life of ancient Israel, but he's far removed from our life in Britain in 2023. There's not really any position or role in our culture that even resembles a high priest. The role of the high priest seems to belong to another time and another place. But it is well worth our while to try and understand this. Because the work of Jesus, our high priest, has great relevance for your daily life and mine. And the way to understand the work of Jesus, our high priest, is by comparing it to the work of Old Testament high priests. That's what the writer of Hebrews does in this passage. He points us to the Old Testament to help us understand what we have today in Christ Jesus. We've been saying the risen Jesus is our representative. That is one of the key roles of the high priest. He represents the people to God. He goes into God's presence on the people's behalf. In the Old Testament, that meant going into the tabernacle tent, and then later on into the temple in Jerusalem. And in both cases, the high priest went into the most holy place, into God's presence, and he went there alone to represent everyone else. He went to obtain mercy and grace from heaven for the people. And here, our passage starts by showing us where Jesus Christ has gone on our behalf. Chapter 4, verse 14. We have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. The tabernacle tent is long gone. The temple in Jerusalem is gone. But that doesn't matter because Jesus Christ has gone right to the throne room of heaven to represent us. 
And as great as that is, it immediately raises a question probably for us. It's the same kind of question we ask about our politicians. Do they really know what it's like to be us? They're supposed to be our representatives, but can they really represent us? What do they know about our situation and our struggles? Don't we hear the accusation again and again about our politicians that they're out of touch with us? They have never had to cope with ordinary life. They're career politicians. They live in a Westminster bubble. They've never done a day's duty as a normal member of the population. Now, when it comes to our representatives in Parliament, that may be a fair criticism in some cases. In other cases, it may not be. But when it comes to our representative in heaven, we are bound to ask the same question. If our representative in heaven is the Son of God, can he represent us well? What does the Son of God know about our situation? Well, the answer comes in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. It's put negatively there, but the meaning is positive. We have a high priest who is able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But what does it mean to feel sympathy? It means to genuinely share in our experience. It's not just a case of saying, as we often do, oh, I know how you feel. True sympathy feels along with us. It doesn't just observe and try to understand what we're going through. True sympathy enters into our situation with us. And that's what Jesus does. Someone has said Christ's sympathy is so strong that our problems become his. Those problems are described here as weaknesses. This is talking about our human frailties. The weaknesses that we have just because we're human beings with human minds and human emotions in human bodies. Those weaknesses make us susceptible to weariness and discouragement and temptation. And verse 15 reminds us, our representative in heaven has been through all that. He has experienced those human weaknesses, not from a distance, but from the inside. The four New Testament Gospels record Jesus' human experience. They tell us he was hungry, he was tired, he was thirsty, he wept when his friend died. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem when he thought about its rebellion against God and the judgment that was coming because of that rebellion. Jesus wept. The Gospels tell us Jesus was in anguish at times. They tell us he was indignant sometimes. 
Jesus was not like Iron Man, protected from real life by a suit of armor. Jesus didn't magically glide over difficulties. He didn't dodge them. He was a true human being. He knows the full range of human emotions, desires, and experiences. Have you ever been misunderstood? Jesus knows what that feels like. Have you ever been mocked? Have you been rejected? Have you been betrayed? Have you been at the very end of your tether? Jesus knows what that feels like. And he knows the full length and breadth of temptation, we're told here. Verse 15 says he's been tempted in every way, just as we are. If you want more detail on that, read Matthew chapter 4 later on. In that passage, you'll find Jesus being tempted to doubt God's faithfulness. You'll find Jesus being tempted to test God as Father by making a wild, reckless leap and expecting God to keep him safe. Jesus faced that temptation. You'll find Jesus being tempted to listen to the devil's promises, promises of prosperity and success without obedience to God. I think those temptations that Jesus faced cover all the bases when it comes to the kind of temptations you and I face. I think all of our temptations would fit into one of those categories. Doubting God's faithfulness, testing God, and listening to the devil's promises instead of obeying God. During his years on earth, Jesus became fully acquainted with our human experience. And that first-hand understanding has given him the gift of sympathy for you and for me. Whenever someone has led a sheltered life, it can make them either patronizing toward others or harsh toward others. When we haven't walked in other people's shoes, it can be very difficult for us to show patience and understanding. It can be difficult for us to help because we don't really, truly get them. But Jesus Christ did not lead a sheltered human life. And so, in words from later in this passage, Jesus is able to deal gently with us. He's able to deal gently with us when we come back to him again and again and again, struggling with the same issue. He doesn't explode in anger or exasperation. Nor does he wave us away like he just can't figure us out. Jesus deals with us. He knows how to. And he deals with us gently. But maybe as we've been speaking about this, some of you have spotted what looks to be a fly in the ointment here. What looks to be a flaw in this scenario. Because verse 15 says, He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet He did not sin. See, 
You might be thinking, can he really understand us? If he never sinned, can he really have felt the full pressure and weight of the temptation that I feel? Well, a writer called Paul Tripp helps us to see that actually the fact that Jesus never sinned means he has felt more pressure and weight of temptation than you or I have. Paul Tripp asks us to imagine a strong man who performs at a carnival by bending steel bars. Let's picture that in your mind for a moment. The first bar that the strong man bends is half an inch thick. He bends it to 90 degrees, and then it snaps. Then he picks up another steel bar. This one is an inch thick. The strong man bends it. He keeps bending it way past 90 degrees, all the way until the two ends of the bar finally touch. But the bar doesn't break. So which bar endured the most pressure? It was the second one, the one that didn't break. And Paul Tripp explains, on earth, Christ was like that second bar. Because he never gave in, because he did not run away, because he never went where temptation would lead, but stood strong until that moment of temptation was over, he endured the full power of temptation, like the bar that didn't break at 90 degrees but was bent all the way until its ends touched. Christ endured stress, pain, suffering, and sacrifice of an intensity that we will never face because he did not break. He endured everything the world could throw at him. Jesus knows way more about temptation than you or I do. So he can certainly understand whatever temptation you are facing. And in response to that, we might say, okay, that is helpful. But it is still true that Jesus doesn't know what it's like to sin. That is something he has not experienced. That's right. But think about this. What is it that stops you and me from truly understanding other people? What is it that keeps you and me from fully entering into another person's situation? Isn't it our sin? Isn't it our sin that makes us more interested in our own situation than in other people's situations? Isn't it our sin that makes us self-absorbed so that we're never fully focused on others? It's because of my sin that there comes a point where my own concerns are more important to me than yours. So actually, my sin doesn't help me understand you better at all. It doesn't help me sympathize with you more. My sin holds me back from entering into your experience. 
It holds me back from truly understanding you. But because Jesus is without sin, his love for us is never short-circuited by sin. His concern for us is not handicapped by self-absorption. Tim Keller says, Jesus is perfect love. There is no barrier. He loves you better than you love yourself and far more wisely. He goes down deep into our pain and feels it with us. Your representative in heaven knows you. He is for you in a way that no one else will ever be for you. And he can help you. Verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is an encouragement to pray, and to pray freely and openly. As you and I begin to grasp who it is we're praying to, then our prayers will be free and open. We're not talking to a headmaster who's frowning on us. We're not talking to a prosecutor who's waiting to catch us out. Our representative in heaven knows us, and he feels with us. He knows exactly the mercy and the grace we need. The message of these verses is that Jesus shares our experience and is ready to help us. So whatever state you are in today, please understand this. Through Jesus Christ, you have access to the throne of the universe. And you are understood there in a way no one else understands you. Heaven understands you better than anyone on earth ever will. And the help that's available from God's throne is the kind of help you won't find anywhere else. Jesus loves you better than you love yourself and far more wisely. He knows better than even you what it is that you need today. So please don't draw back from heaven. Speak freely to heaven. You have the perfect representative there. It's not presumptuous for us to look to heaven for help. The presumptuous thing is to hold back as if heaven doesn't care or can't understand us. A representative in heaven can help us in our situation, but he can do even more than that. He offers an eternal cure for our situation. The Son of God came to earth not only so He could feel our pain and help us through it. He came to solve the root problem of our pain. And in doing that, Jesus went way beyond what any other high priest could do. Having told us that Jesus shares our experience and is ready to help us, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, 
Jesus overcame our experience and is able to save us. Chapter 5 starts by going back to Aaron, the first high priest. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. These verses give us some key details about the high priest. He's one of the people, selected from among the people. He represents the people to God. He brings animal sacrifices for their sins. And we noticed earlier, he is able to deal gently with the people. But in the case of the Old Testament high priest, he needed to be dealt with gently himself. He needed God's mercy along with the rest of the people because he had sins of his own that needed forgiveness. And then notice the point in verse 4. It wasn't Aaron who decided the people needed a priest. God set up the priesthood. God appointed the high priest. It was all God's idea and God's initiative. Then verses 5 to 10 tell us the Old Testament high priest was there to set the stage actually for the true high priest. Aaron and his successors were a foreshadowing of what God would provide in a perfect way through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews shows us that point by point. Verse 4 told us Aaron was selected and appointed by God. Now verse 5 says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There are two quotations from the Old Testament here that probably seem a bit obscure to us. But what we need to know is simply, Melchizedek, the person mentioned in the second quotation, he was unique in the Old Testament because he was a royal priest, a king who was also a priest. No other priest in the Old Testament was like that. Aaron and his descendants weren't royal priests. Priests came from one line and kings came from another. So in that sense, Melchizedek alone foreshadowed Jesus, the definitive royal priest who was to come. And then the first quotation here in verse 5 is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was used at the appointment of Israel's king. And so today I have become your father is not about the king being born. It's about God installing the king. These are words of inauguration or coronation. And here in Hebrews 5, those words are applied to Jesus being installed as God's royal high priest. And the point of verses 5 and 6 together is that just as Aaron didn't claim the priesthood for himself, 
Neither did Jesus. He was appointed to it by God the Father. And just as Melchizedek was unique in the Old Testament as a royal priest, in an even greater way, Jesus' priesthood is unique. He surpasses all other priests. And, verse 6 says, Jesus was appointed as God's royal priest forever. There were many high priests before Jesus. There will never be another after him. He's the one all the other high priests were leading to. He does to perfection what they did only imperfectly and temporarily. And Jesus will never be replaced. The next verses tell us why. Look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. The word offered there makes a connection with what was said of Aaron back in verse 1. Aaron offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. Animal sacrifices, that was what Aaron offered to God. Here we're told Jesus, the royal high priest, offered prayers and petitions and fervent cries. Jesus didn't offer animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice was his own perfect obedience. Verse 7 is almost certainly referring back to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's referring to all that came after Gethsemane, including Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus went to that garden in Gethsemane the night before he died. He went there knowing what was ahead of him. Torture, crucifixion, deep betrayal from people close to him. And worst of all, Jesus knew as he knelt in that garden, he knew he was going to have the experience of being cut off from his father. And Mark's gospel tells us in Gethsemane, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The human emotion of sorrow has never been experienced so profoundly as Jesus experienced it that night. And in the midst of that overwhelming sorrow came this prayer from Jesus. Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will but what you will. The cup Jesus is referring to is his suffering and death. That was a bitter cup he knew he was going to have to drink. But we might ask, didn't Jesus know it would come down to this? Didn't he know long before this night in the garden? Didn't he come to earth determined to go to the cross? Yes and yes. Jesus had spoken many times about how the cross must happen. 
He told his disciples he came to earth for the cross. So what is going on in the garden? In the garden, Jesus was experiencing what it means to obey God fully. No human being had done that ever before. And Jesus himself had not been through this before. In the garden, Jesus was in uncharted territory. The territory of obeying when he felt overwhelmed with the desire to turn back and turn away. But in that darkest situation, under that full pressure and weight of temptation, Jesus reverently submitted to go through with what he came to do. And verse 7 says, he was heard. And because we know the rest of the story, we know that being heard did not result in Jesus avoiding death. Being heard meant the father did not abandon his son to death. He vindicated his son by raising him from the grave. And beyond that, raising him to his throne in heaven. Well, what's the point of all this? Why did Jesus have to pass through these depths of sorrow and suffering? Sorrow and suffering that felt overwhelming. It was to provide us with a perfect, fully qualified high priest. Verse 8. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And... Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. We might do a double take when we read those verses. Can that be right? In verse 8, first of all, how could the Son of God learn obedience? Well, this is not saying Jesus was a little bit rebellious and he needed to be brought in line. No, he learned obedience by being obedient all the way to the cross. He learned by experience what it means to obey in the face of overwhelming sorrow and temptation. Until he came to earth, the Son of God had not had that experience. And going through that experience made him completely fit to be our high priest. That is what made perfect means in verse 9. It means Jesus' experience made him perfectly qualified for the role he'd been given. Only by experiencing the depths of human pain and temptation could Jesus come to sympathize fully with our weaknesses. And only by being obedient in the depths of his own weakness could he become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was perfect. It was untainted by any sin of his own. It was enough to pay for our sin. 
Jesus overcame our experience and is able to save us. And notice this eternal salvation in verse 9 is not given to everyone. It's for all who obey him. That is not saying our obedience earns us salvation. We know that because the same verse says Jesus is the source of salvation. It's not achieved by our effort. It's achieved by his on the cross. But what we are being told in verse 9 is that we cannot receive eternal salvation without a commitment to Jesus. That means trusting in the work he did on the cross. Trusting that his sacrifice on the cross really did pay completely for our sin. And a true commitment to Jesus will lead us to live for him. It will lead us to make it our aim to obey him in every area of our life. And right at the end here, verse 10 reminds us God the Father is not reluctant in all of this. He was the one who took the initiative and designated Jesus to be our representative in heaven. A representative who offers us both eternal salvation and mercy and grace for the needs of each day. Mercy and grace to follow him in obedience, even when we think it's beyond us, even in situations where we have failed a thousand times before. There is mercy and grace for us. Jesus has gone further in his obedience than any of us ever have. Jesus can lead us to new experiences of reverent submission to God. So look to him for that this week. Come to him committed to obedience and he will help you in your time of need. Never ever think that your situation is the one situation that's too tough for his mercy and grace to bring you through it. And never think that your life is beyond the reach of his eternal salvation. Come to him for that if you haven't done so. Come trusting that he has done enough to save you. Whatever your life has been like up to this point. In the life and death and heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ, God has provided all you will ever need. Our last song gives us an opportunity to respond to what God's Word has told us. It reminds us because Jesus is our representative in heaven, we are safe when we come to Him. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.